he, he officiated over the big Earth Day celebration on the first one in, in Philadelphia. Um, and he was, he went by unicorn, he was a hippie. Uh, and then he later, he murdered his girlfriend and mummified her body. <laughs> he became the unicorn killer. Yeah, it's Whoa. a strange story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, a weird anecdote. Occasionally, the right will bring it up when they're bashing Earth Day and bashing environmentalism, but it's actually there's a lot more to it. It's actually points to the weird nature of the whole thing. Well, he's he's walking the walk of uh, environmentalism and <laughs> Malthusianism. He's got to reduce the number of people on Earth. Yeah, well, right. right. And the weirdest thing was, so he you know he was arrested for having this dead body in his apartment and you know charged with murder. And so like all kinds of like top Democrats came and spoke at his um, his bail hearing and said he was trustworthy and all this. So he got bail, and then he disappeared for like thirty years. And they found him in the south of France, uh, living hmm. in this cottage. And like the late two thousands, they finally extradited him. That's crazy. It's a really bizarre story. And he was supported by some very wealthy like folks, um, you know, and he at the time he was uh, extradited to the United States. He claimed that he hadn't really killed his girlfriend. The CIA had framed him and that uh, he had secrets about military experiments or something. It's a very strange incident. He died just as the pandemic was going. He was in prison in, in Pennsylvania. Hmm. Really bizarre story. Wait, what's this guy's name again? I got to look him up now. I Einhorn. He's known as the unicorn killer. And he claimed many times to have started Earth Day. He didn't really. He was a bit of a narcissist. Uh, it was a, huh. a, a boast, but he did officiate over the Earth Day uh, uh, rally that they had in Philadelphia when on the first Earth Day. So very mysterious. Har a Harvard man, too. Yeah, yeah. Very weird. And he had powerful friends. That's pretty clear. I think he did kill his girlfriend, but I don't think he was framed. But he clearly had some powerful <laughs> friends who smuggled him out of the country, you know, pulled some strings to get prominent people to push for his bail. So hmm. very mysterious. Yeah, this guy deserves to have a Netflix series about him. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it seems like one of those, those really weird, weird, tragic, mysterious stories that Netflix likes to do. So Caleb, I wanted to ask you. So, I saw your, I saw your tweet about, um, you know, how the first Earth Day was held as a way to distract American leftists from the hundredth anniversary of Lenin's birth, uh, which is being celebrated by huge demonstrations and gatherings all across the planet. So I'm just curious, you know, because like the the fog of history is always so hard to like weave through. Because when I looked at like the Wikipedia for Earth Day. Um, it does talk about the birthday of Lenin, and I guess at the time, like J. Edgar Hoover was supposedly, who knows if this was genuine or just like a, a faint, but J. Edgar Hoover was claiming that, um, you know, Earth Day was actually a communist trick um, because they were holding it on Lenin's birthday, and actually Earth Day was, you know, a communist Soviet uh, plot, you know, to destabilize the U.S. So, I mean, what do you think about that? You talk about history so much. Um, well, that's what like the yeah. far, far right said at the time, the John Birch Society and other kind of forces. But you have to remember that, you know, Earth Day was was the U.S. Congress that passed it as a holiday. And it was it was members of the U.S. Senate uh, who really mm. presided over the big gathering, the one in New York City, the one in Philadelphia. Um, and that, you know, 1970 was a, a time of huge turmoil in the United States. Nixon had had become president. Uh, it was about a year into his presidency. Um, you know, later, you know, just to couple of weeks later, you had the Kent State Massacre, May 4th, 1970. Uh, they just announced that war had expanded into Cambodia. 
the Black Panthers had a huge amount of support in the Black community. There had been huge urban rebellions. Uh, the anti-Vietnam War movement was huge. Protests on the college campuses were everywhere. And then, you know, to coincide with that, in every corner of the world, you were going to have huge gatherings for Lenin's birthday, right? In the Soviet Union, there was a huge gathering that took place in Lenin's hometown. Uh, you know, in China, they had huge demonstrations. They even published a special book, like, you know, about basically accusing the Soviets of betraying Lenin's memory. Uh, there were celebrations in almost every African country. There were big demonstrations of people marching to the streets with Lenin's, you know, photo, photo, Argentina, Chile, you go down the line. So the fact that all over the world, there's gonna be this huge, huge communist gathering for the 100th anniversary of Lenin's birth, right? And there's a huge radical movement in the United States of people that are in the streets and, you know, when we, communist factions are gaining influence in the United States, if you look at what Earth Day was, Earth Day was not a communist gathering by any means. It was very much a gathering that was about, we need to regulate industry to some degree in order to, to curb pollution. But it also pushed forward some of the elements of the environmental movement that, that were probably the most contrary to Marxism, right? Because a lot of, you know, Marxism is an ideology that's about growth fundamentally. And the goal mm -hmm. is banks, factories, and industries, you know, the means of production rationally controlled by society, getting rid of the irrational boom-bust cycle and moving to a world of so much material abundance that class differences break down. Mm -hmm. and, you know, you, you have a, a world of material abundance from each according to their own ability to each according to their need, the state withers away. Um, but a lot of the hippie movement kind of had the opposite in their aesthetics. They, they admired the primitivism of the East. Uh, they, they kind of talked about growth being bad. Um, yeah. And so you had a holiday that kind of highlighted that mm -hmm. aspect of leftism, which was very contrary to the Marxist wing of things. And I don't think it was an accident by any means. I also yeah. don't think it was a communist conspiracy. I think it was a way to push the left in another direction. And that's right. pretty apparent. Well, it's amazing how you can see the through line to today. It's the, it's the exact same thing today as this, degrowth, uh, you know, anti-growth, anti-consumer um, movement now, which is supposedly the left of, you know, the, yeah. our country and, and, you know. And paid for by some of the same corporations, you know, uh -huh. a lot of corporations that are now sponsoring Black Lives Matter and other yeah. demonstrations and, and called for, you know, removing Donald Trump uh, also sponsored the Earth Day gatherings, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know. And, uh, you know, that's not to say, I mean, I am, I don't deny climate change, contrary to what some allege, I do not <laughs> change, it's a reality. I, I, I think human beings are contributing to climate disaster. I've always just maintained the answer is we need to move beyond fossil fuels. We need fusion energy, you know, yeah. higher energy sources. Um, right. And that, you know, historical progress is not bad. And whenever right. you start saying that growth is bad, yeah. economic development is bad, uh, you know, it's the I think Mother Teresa, you know, notoriously reactionary said poverty is beautiful. That kind of thing <laughs> oh my God. is dangerous. It's yeah. Dangerous. Yeah. And that's not, you can't be a progressive and think that way. So no. yeah. 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 And it's interesting to look back at that time in the seventies. You know, we, we talk about it a lot because we're, we're trying to uh, kind of weave the connections between that time uh, with the new left in the seventies and kind of this anti-communist sentiment um, with the, you know, the splitting of the left uh, away from organized labor and towards these kind of environmental or identitarian causes, um, moving away from class. And uh, also like at that time, the seventies, there was this rebirth and Malthusianism because of, of the Frank Ehrlich and the population bomb being published. Um, Schumacher published the small is beautiful book. Yeah, the um, so the limits to growth. 
yeah. yeah. On the same time. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think about that, that time in the seventies, you know, this was post Khrushchev, um, you know, that time when like, you know, people, American communists have kind of rejected Stalinism in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there was, it was just a weird time. So like, what do you think about the seventies and looking at that and how we got to where we are now with, you know, the so-called left in the the United States? couple layers to it. Okay, so the first thing you have to remember is coming out of World War II, the USA had the best and strongest economy in the world. The rest of the world had been bombed to shreds by the war, but the United States, our steel mills remained intact, our factories, our auto plants remained intact. So we were selling steel to the rest of the world, selling auto plant, you know, auto, you know, cars to the rest of the world, you know, you know, we were the world's manufacturer, plus Roosevelt had built all this great infrastructure with his Works Progress Administration, Mm. plus the labor movement had been Mm. very strong during the Roosevelt years, so they came out of the war, you had the post-war strike wave, so all of a sudden the, the militant labor unions were able to win all these huge gains, and you know, factory workers in the United States, your average working class person who maybe in the 1930s had been living in, you know, had been making about what fast food workers make now, suddenly they were making very good wages. And then you get the house and the car and the white picket fence and the American dream and leave it to Beaver. So, you know, leftists in the United States, then, you know, you know, you have McCarthyism because mm. suddenly, you know, you know, people no longer feel a need for class struggle. There's a mm. feeling that communists are foreign subversives. They're dangerous. <clears throat> you know, everything's going to be OK. Uh, you know, suddenly we have this high standard of living. And, you know, the left, which had been essential, they'd been a huge part of the Roosevelt coalition. I mean, the communists and, you know, I mean, you know, you talk about the vice president, Henry Wallace, who'd been a Socialist Party member and secretary of agriculture and and praised, you know, the Soviet Union throughout World War II. And, you know, he was purged out of the Democratic Party and it was McCarthyism was a nightmare. So you had the booming economy plus McCarthyism. Um, And so, you know, the the nature of what it meant to be a leftist suddenly changed. You, you know, among white Americans, you didn't have desperate poverty. You had a very high standard of living. So, you know, going into a working class neighborhood, uh, you know, and, and organizing people, you know, against unemployment or something wasn't going to work. People didn't want to hear it. And the early years of Students for a Democratic Society, when they were first starting out, they were trying to relive the 1930s. They were trying to build unemployment councils and labor union federations. It didn't work because most of the population said, look, our life is great, our standard yeah. of living is high. So, you know, you always have, when the economy is good, when the economy is bad, no matter what state society is in, you're gonna have a layer of uh, what you might call the revolutionary intelligentsia. College professors, intellectuals, you know, people that are interested in communist politics, not because they're starving and hungry, but just out of, you know, they, they do want a better society. They see the injustices of the world. And, and with, you know, in some cases, you can argue it's a privileged position that they have access to information and education and opportunities other people don't have. And that opens their eyes. So this kind of, this milieu of, you know, kind of middle-class academic folks became really the only place communists could really recruit uh, and really have influence. So, you know, you see, especially, you know, as the Vietnam War gets going, there's a big focus on pacifism, right? It's an appeal to pacifism. Mm. The folks who are trying to stop the Vietnam War, they're not saying, you know, workers turn your guns around. Instead, they're saying, you know, we're focusing on pacifism. And the Soviet Union is emphasizing the danger of nuclear war. And the Communist Party USA, their orientation is more to try and appeal to Catholic clergy and ministers and push for kind of pacifism um, and opposite, you know, so that that's all a factor that, that because of the booming US economy, class struggle wasn't a thing. 
hmm. right? In the black community, you had anger and, and resistance to Jim Crow. Um, and among intellectuals and academics, you had, you know, opposition to, to the status quo. And then you had, you know, kind of pacifistic opposition to the Vietnam War. But overall, the class struggle, the, you know, the desperation you had in the 30s was gone. So part of what, how the left changes is just about the circumstances, but you have to then add to that conscious manipulation, right? Which is also a factor because starting in 1949, the CIA launched a pro program called the Congress for Cultural Freedom and started fun funneling money to anti-communist leftists. Uh, you know, generally the people that made up the Congress for Cultural Freedom were followers of the Trotskyite Max Schachtman. Max Schachtman had been a follower of Trotsky, been a founder of the Communist Party, broke with the Communist Party, became a Trotskyist, and then he had a falling out with Trotsky over the question of whether the Soviet Union was socialist or not. He, mm -hmm. Trotsky maintained it was a deformed worker state. He didn't like Stalin, but it was still socialist economic foundations. Uh, Schachmann said the Soviet Union was, was like Nazi Germany. It was a bureaucratic collectivist or state capitalist society. And Schachmann, uh, after World War II, his followers, uh, one of them being Irving Kristol, who is the father of neoconservatism, started working for the CIA. And Irving Kristol was actually the director of the CIA's Congress for Cultural Freedom program, where they started covertly giving money to leftists uh, in order to put out an anti-Soviet uh, message. Um, and uh, the magazine Partisan Review, which was a purported to be a communist socialist magazine, and it was all over the college campuses. Every campus you went to, you could find a partisan review. And it was this subversive communist magazine, except it, it like every issue was devoted to exposing the Stalinists, uh, you know, much like in the way, you know, people get gone after now. They would wage campaigns against one artist or intellectual that was aligned with the communists, mm -hmm. and people to boycott their performances. And, and uh, a lot of the, you know, what was done in partisan review magazine was equating the Soviets with the Nazis, right? And saying that, that it's basically the same system. Um, and they launched a program in Britain. Uh, the magazine was called Encounter, and it was basically the same operation. In Germany, they launched it in West Germany, and it was called Der Monat. Um, uh, around, that, around what time was this? This was in the 1950s, in, okay. in the mid-50s. I mean, it got going in 1949, but it really escalated. And direct CIA payments to, to pay for their operations were supplemented by uh, the Ford Foundation and uh, the Rockefeller think tanks and other things. And various left-wing academics were getting subsidized by getting paid lots of money to have their articles appear in this magazine that was everywhere. And this was the conscious manipulation. And uh, you talk about the Frankfurt School and, and the rise of, of this new, and it's weird because on the right, they have this whole thing about cultural Marxism, right? Mm -hmm. well, well, what they're missing is that a lot of these like, cultural critics that really emphasized Gramsci really downplayed the idea of class struggle, uh, you, know, you know, emphasized, uh, you know, you had Herbert Marcuse who said that the working class was not revolutionary, the intellectuals were the revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. All of this was being covertly supported as a way to kind of direct intellectuals and leftists away from Marxism. And yeah. in the process, they changed really the nature of what leftism was. You know, the anti-populism came out. Susan Sontag is a really important right. voice in this milieu. And, and so Hannah Arendt also comes out of this. Um, and anti-populism, the idea that average people are the enemy, that average people are dangerous. Yeah. And if they ever get together and start fighting for their rights, uh, that's, that's basically the same as not right. to terminate. That became a big theme in what it meant to be a leftist, this kind of intellectual nonconformity. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's not it's not all literally like the CIA writing a check and telling people like oh go go study this in the university and teach your students this, but it got social. I think that happened somewhat, but they were adding fuel to a fire that just got socially reproduced. And you know a lot of what happens today too is like uh, a lot of leftists 
maybe have no, you know, aren't being like directly manipulated with like money or being told to do something, but they're reproducing these patterns that have been rooted for decades, you know, from the stuff that you're talking about. It's like the seeds were planted that what, what you're describing, Caleb, just sounds like literally what happens today where it's like the whole left is basically this, this constructed thing that is very anti-Marxist. There's this whole red-brown conspiracy, Strasserite, you know, Nazbol, all these terms, you know, that come, that come up. And like all the people who are like these famous influencers within the leftist milieu are all like funded by the Ford Foundation or other philanthropies. Um, and it seems so obvious. It's an, it's a kind of insane. It's almost like these are the this is the root of like what has become of you know what's today what we're seeing. Why can't we like look? You know, everyone is so obsessed with like looking at history and like learning from it, but they're missing this like really essential piece that is like such a direct correlation of what's happening now. You know, yeah. and I mean, if you read like Nudge, the book by Cass Sunstein, uh, or if you read, if you look at it, I mean, it's not that all of these people are told what to say. It's the opposite. You look for people who are saying what you want to amplify and you promote them and you don't promote other people. And nowadays, you know, at the time of the Congress for Cultural mm-hmm. Freedom, a lot of these people didn't know they were taking CIA money. You know, um, James Baldwin didn't know he was being covertly supported by the CIA, mm. but there was this magazine that wanted to hire him and found his message beforehand and said, this is what we want to highlight. We don't want to highlight, you know, black liberation voices that are pro-communist, but we'll find this, this guy who has more of an anti-communist but pro-black liberation voice. We'll highlight him. And it's about finding voices that already exist and amplifying them. That was yeah. the strategy. And that's, that's what people don't get. Occasionally, I'll get someone who shoots back. It's like, oh, you think everyone who doesn't agree with you is, you know, it's just because they're getting paid. I'm like, no, no, yeah. no. Yeah. That, well, that people get paid because somebody wants to hear their message. And nowadays with Patreon, I mean, yeah. who the hell knows who's paying you? I have Patreon. Right. I don't know who these people are. Right. And, and, and you know, and, and, and we're all subject to manipulation. That's the dangerous thing. You have to remember that. You know, um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, B.F. Skinner, uh, the theorist of behaviorism, he determined that the worst way to control someone's behavior is to punish them. Because if you punish somebody, they will resent you. They can just mm-hmm. feel like a victim. And they'll say, oh, I'm being unfairly treated. They won't change their behavior. Whereas when you reward somebody, no one ever turns down a reward. No yeah. one ever says, oh, take your $200 back. I'm, you know, I, you're trying to manipulate me. No one does that. So yeah. <laughs> if you incentivize people to, to operate in a certain way, they will do it. And the, the incentivizers are much more covert. The algorithms, the way they operate, what words mm-hmm. get clicks, what words don't, you know, it, it's all very, very, very carefully, carefully done. And bread tube, I, I argue, is a strand of leftism that has been yeah. highlighted uh, because it simply is not a threat to the neoliberal order, right? Absolutely. So I know I heard you're working on a book about bread tube. Which yeah, I figured, why not, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, they, I know they're they're obsessed with you. You might as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it'll be short. It's not like you know a big you know a big big three part you know thousand page thing. It's just going to be a short. It's probably less than a hundred pages, a little yeah. bit almost. But it's going to come out. I needs to be done, right? I mean, we need to talk about it. I'm excited. Uh, well, as somebody who has actually done a lot of research and and made a video about BreadTube, yeah. I'm actually excited to um, see what you come up with because we'll probably come up with a lot of the same conclusions. And what you're talking about is, um, you know, what I witnessed a lot too, is that, yes, the algorithm is, is very much like incentivizing certain behaviors, 
Um, and, and really the people who are in it, they really are obsessed with kind of just growing their channel. They're mm-hmm. getting, you know, whether on, whether they realize it or not, they're getting, you know, reinforced to kind of like do the things that their audience responds to and that is going to grow their audience. So they're not going to do the things that, that need, they're not going to like be critical of the system because then the system's not going to reward yeah. them. And then they, they, but they've created a whole ecosystem that feels kind of pseudo uh, political it's political within the like you know allowable spectrum of you know neoliberal capitalism yeah where you can you can talk about like the chuds and the you know the republicans and the you know this and that the incels but you can't actually hack away at like the ideology of the system it's like the the algorithm has made the Ford Foundation irrelevant and redundant. <laughs> it's one way of looking at it. <laughs> I mean, the main thing I think, though, that there's another context to this, which is that there's a huge fight among the capitalist class and mm. and the state apparatus at this point. I mean, we saw that on January sixth, right? You know, I mean, you can argue about why it happened, how much they let it happen, et cetera. But not that just it happening at all indicates how much disagreement there is among the rich and powerful and among the law enforcement agencies from the Capitol Police up to the FBI and yeah. the intelligence apparatus. And that there is a big fight among the capitalists right now. And a very important book by Karl Marx, and it's a little bit hard to decipher because it was written a long time ago, but in 1851, Karl Marx wrote a very good pamphlet called The 18th Brumiere of Louis Bonaparte. And it was about, in France, there was a capitalist crisis, uh, unemployment, people hungry in the streets, and there was a fight among the capitalists. And so the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, Louis, Louis Napoleon, had a military coup and took power. Um, and he did it in order to try and save capitalism, in order to use like the government to stabilize capitalism. And he had this military coup and it was of a left-wing nature, right? The idea was to beat back the royalists and the conservatives, but also beat back like the communists and the revolutionaries, right? And that was the idea. And that, you know, this, this military regime was set up on behalf of the finance capitalists, kind of uh, on behalf of, of some of the, like the farmers and the peasantry, but for the purpose of, of kind of forcing the industrial capitalists to make some concessions to try and stabilize French society. And in order to do it, Marx has this, this paragraph where he describes this, this army of people that, uh, that Louis Bonaparte assembled to kind of push his will on French society. And he listed off, and I mean, it just sounded, I was part of Occupy Wall Street. It sounded like Occupy Wall Street. I mean, it was, it's hilarious. Go read the paragraph. I don't have it in front of me, but it's, it's like, it's this army of, of what he would refer to as La Boheme or Bohemians or, or the lumpen proletariat, basically, huh. or slum proletariat. It was this army of people that kind of don't have a place in society, either they're intellectuals or they're criminal or they're, you know, literati or they're into, you know, mystical, you know, practices or whatever. But this, this kind of milieu of people is assembled to be kind of the, you know, the army, the, the strong arms of Louis Bonaparte to kind of force his agenda. Um, and Marx writes about it and he says this isn't a revolution because a revolution is made by the broad masses of people. It's made by the yeah. people. But when you have this kind of like, you know, this army that's formed, this, this kind of, you know, this group of, you know, whatever you want to call them, slum proletarians, bohemians, et cetera, to push the agenda of one section of the ruling class, that is a method of stabilizing society. And we saw that in the 20th century. I would say that, you know, the Nazi state, you know, the brown shirts and their movement was very much, it was an element, you had very poor people, you had intellectuals, you had confused people, it was this army built to, you know, force one section of the ruling class into control of the government to try and stabilize yeah. society. 
And there's many examples of that uh, throughout history. And that's what happens in a capitalist crisis. So right, right now, I feel like the higher levels of capital in the United States, like you know, Walmart, the Walton family, uh, the Rockefeller family of ExxonMobil, you know, and, and, and those folks don't like Trump. Those folks feel like Trump was unstable, he was unpredictable. Mm -hmm. But it was the lower level capitalists that liked Trump. Betsy DeVos, you know, mm -hmm. Trump's secretary of education, her brother's Eric Prince of Blackwater. Um, you know, she it comes out of the Amway, you know, the multi-level marketing Tupperware, you know, that's where she comes out of. Mm -hmm. uh, you've also got, um, you know, you got the fracking companies, uh, Bernie Marcus, uh, the owner of Home Depot is a big Trump supporter. And these lower level capitalists kind of rallied around Trump uh, to kind of, you know, kind of, you know, fight to lift some of the restraints that had been imposed by the Obama administration, the hopes mm. of stabilizing U.S. society after the financial crisis. Um, and it was kind of an upsurge among the lower levels of, of American capital. And uh, what we've seen is that uh, things kind of, you know, got out of control. And we've seen the higher levels, especially since the pandemic, the higher levels of capital in the United States basically say, no, we're going we're gonna to end this kind of rebellion among lower level capitalists. We're going to stabilize the economy. Um, you know, and, and so we see kind of a division. And I would argue that the alt-right, uh, you know, the libertarian element, the, those kind of forces, QAnon would be the set, you know, the, the mobilization to represent the lower levels of capital, whereas BreadTube, Antifa, these yeah. forces are mobilized to protect uh, the establishment from yeah. the right-wing insurgency. And that's what's happening. The capitalists fight with each other in a time yeah. like so. I think that's the biggest thing that BreadTube and anarchists get wrong is that they kind of flatten capitalist and uh, flatten the capitalist class as being this monolith that just wants to make as much yeah. money as possible in a short amount of time as possible uh, without seeing the larger political economy of like civil society, foundation money, and um, this uh, kind of intra elite struggle that you're describing. Um, and they, you know, they end up being just these useful idiots Pons. for yeah. some of the most powerful interests in the world. Yeah. It's the ultra rich uh, that have a long term strategic view. Yeah. You know, you go back to Cecil Rhodes, who Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, was named after. He set up this thing called the Round Table Group, which was just a group of academics that he basically paid to plan out British foreign policy and the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, which is probably the most important foreign policy think tank in the United States, you know, is, is very, very much descended from Cecil Rhodes Round Table Group that he set up. Um, and that, you know, it's the, you know, you talk about the Rockefellers and their role and, and the ultra rich tend to, you know, they're already at the top of the pyramid. So they want to make sure they stay at the top of the pyramid, which yeah. means stabilizing society in more of a yeah. managerial way. Whereas it's the lower level that, yeah, they just want to maximize their profits in the short term, right. you know, and that's the divide. I talk about the entrepreneurial capitalists versus the managerial ones yeah. and the managerial right. ones tend to have the upper hand with Biden, I think. Right. And I think that like the, the absolute upper levels, they care deeply about the environment. They care deeply about climate change because they want to stable. They do want to stabilize the world and keep it under their control, basically. Yeah. So and, and that's where, you know, I, I maybe we'll get into it at the end about degrowth. And uh, I know some bread tube people are going to be making videos about it. But, uh, you know, they're they're really they really are like doing doing the work uh, for these extremely rich people because the extremely rich do want to degrow the economy. They do want all of us to have less and to not own anything and to share everything because ultimately it's going to help cement their control over all of us. Well, and it's all connected. And I kind of want to like parse some things out here because I know Caleb, you got a lot of flack for a tweet that you made about um, billionaires. Yeah. Now we're talking and I, I agree. I, when you, when you tweeted that, I was like, 
I, I see what Caleb's saying. And, but let's parse this out because I'm somebody in my Twitter profile who says, follow me if you hate billionaires. <laughs> and we were just talking about the elites, the capitalist class, and who are the billionaires. So I think what happens, it, the reaction is that people equate billionaire with capitalists. I mean, for good reason, right? I think what you're speaking about as far as like abolish billionaires as anti-Marxist is you're speaking to this idea that we want abundance. We don't want to um, roll back the ability to create abundance in societies so that maybe some people become billionaires. We want everyone to have more than enough um, that they, they need. So I, I think here's like a nice opportunity to kind of parse out like capitalist, billionaire, and then abundance and all that stuff. Right. Well, Marxists are not opposed to wealth. And that, that idea is widespread among the population. Just today, I got trolled by a bunch of libertarians. Oh, he's getting super chats. That's capitalism. No, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, you know, there's this notion that, uh, that communists were opposed to wealth. And capitalism is a system where people have wealth. And on that basis, you have a lot of working class people who say, well, I'd like to have wealth. So I'm a capitalist and all these people, you know, in Venezuela, look, they're poorer than the United States. So that clearly that's communism because they're poorer or something. That's that's the mass, you know, belief. Right. But the reality is that, you know, communists, socialists, they're not opposed to wealth. They are opposed to wealth being created through exploitation. Mm. They are opposed to a system where the means of production operate according to profits. And the problem with the billionaires that rule our world, the billionaire capitalist ruling class, the bankers and the corporate you know, giants, the problem with them isn't that they have wealth. The problem is that their wealth was acquired in a system where profits come before people. Yeah. And the hope is that you know, with socialism, the banks and the factories, the major industries can be publicly owned and operated rationally. Mm -hmm. So growth can go to even higher levels yeah. than what we see in this society. So when you say abolish billionaires, billionaire is just a measurement of wealth, right? Mm -hmm. You say abolish capitalists, sure. Abolish capitalism, I'm on board with you. When you say abolish billionaires, you're saying we're going to cap human wealth at a certain level. And that reinforces this notion that we're anti-wealth, which we aren't. And second of all, it's a pessimistic view. It, it takes away the ultimate vision of a of, of vast abundance breaking down all inequality, right? Yeah. And this requires an understanding of Marxism. Um, you know. Uh, I'm trying to think of, of, of good ways to illustrate it, but you know, like back in the time of, of feudalism, uh, a mirror was a very, very valuable item that only like the richest kings and queens had, mm -hmm. right? So if you had been around back then and you declared abolish mirrors, <laughs> uh, you know, that wouldn't have been the right approach. I would say let's yeah. you know, do a higher mode of production so everyone can have a mirror like we have now. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. if you say abolish billionaires, you're, you're saying no one in in all of the rest of human history should ever have what a billionaire has now right and you're you're, you're basically declaring it's a pessimistic outlook totally right? um and it also reinforces anti-communist uh, delusions right people just don't understand the nature of of marxism so you know it, it feeds into this degrowth narrative growth yeah. is bad and it also it, it also is misrepresentative so that's that's my view I, I totally agree. You know, it's funny. Like I get a lot that people say I'm a pessimist. I'm like, no, I'm, I feel like I'm a very optimistic person. I, I think that there's a lot of potential for humanity and that's where my politics are rooted in is, is the potential that human beings have. I, I, I love human beings. And I think that we, you know, can actually make a society that, that 
works really well for like all of us and not just like a few of us. And I think that's a very optimistic um, point of view. And, and yeah, and I think that this sort of degrowth thing is this very strange kind of, I don't know, I, I, I have this idea that like the people in charge, yeah, they wanna control um, the populations. And I think it's rooted in this idea that they're afraid of these, they're afraid of the population because they are controlling them. They're afraid that one day that, you know, that dog's gonna get loose and bite them or something. So I think that this kind of ideology of this fear of humanity trickles down um, to the masses. And that's why people, you know, start saying things like, oh, you know, we're killing the earth, we're, we're a cancer on society, we're killing, you know, humans are bad. It's, it's a very like anti-human position that I think just gets trickled down from the elites. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about it on a personal level, um, you know, I mean, I'm very lucky. I'm a reporter for an international TV network. So when this pandemic hit, I was I was all right. You know, my life was set up and I had a good job that wasn't going to go away and, and I was OK. But I know a lot of people that are younger than I am that are just got out of college or whatever, and they have been just screwed. You know, I mean, they're just miserable. Um, and like I talked to, you know, you talk to anyone who's in their 20s, you talk to people that are in their late teens they're not feeling too well, right? And, uh, you know, I mean, in a lot of them, it just kind of translates into a lot of demoralization and frustration. But beyond that, I mean, the suicide rate has gone through the roof. I mean, you know, drug addiction is through the roof. You know, you talk about there's a lot of compulsive use of pornography around the internet now, and a lot of young men that just are, are miserable. And if you look at all of this, it all flows from a pessimism that is coming out of, it's coming out of our cell phones, it's coming out of our computers, that's telling us there is no future, there is no hope, um, yeah. you know? And, uh, and that pessimism is toxic, right? If yeah. you don't have a reason to wake up in the morning, if you don't have a reason to, uh, to you know, keep, keep going uh, in life, if you don't have something to believe in, uh, you're, not gonna, you're not gonna be a healthy person. And, and you know, I mean, you, you basically, if you don't have a reason to keep living, you start dying on some level, whether, yeah. you know, whether intentionally or subconsciously or whatnot. Right. Um, and, and so this pessimism is very, very dangerous. And, you know, it's on the one hand, like, you know, I do, I do agree with the Bernie Sanders movement. People should have healthcare, people should have jobs, people should, we should raise the minimum wage and all of that. But even the Bernie movement is kind of infected with this pessimism, right? Because what I hear a lot of is, um, you know, kind of younger folks that are very frustrated uh, about the world and they say, you know, fuck this shit, give me some free stuff. Hmm. And, you know, I don't, I, they should get the free stuff. They're entitled to it, you know what I mean? Corporations get free stuff all the time. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, big banks and corporate, you know, so why shouldn't they get healthcare and education? But at the same time, that's very pessimistic. Yeah. And that's not, you know, that's not the attitude that the Black Panthers had. That's not the yeah. attitude that, uh, you know, that Eugene Debs and the Communist Party had, right? They, there's not a like, we're going to go out and build a whole new society. We're going to unleash creativity and, and, yeah. and human, human growth and initiative. Leftism is very, very optimistic. And unfortunately, I, that pessimism that you're describing, which is very, very toxic, has infected left circles. Meanwhile, it's libertarians that have kind of hijacked it, unfortunately. The libertarians, <laughs> yeah. say, oh, you want to work hard, you want to get rich, get the government off your back. But it's so it's, you can be optimistic, you just have to give up collectivism, right? You mm. just have to be all on your own, Ayn yeah. Rand, virtue of selfishness. And it's like we have basically two sides of the same coin, right? Yeah. On the left, we have the pessimism, the destructiveness, the backwardness. 
On the right, we have, you know, we, we have this, this individualism, this lack of compassion, this breaking down of any, any group identity. It's all you against the world. Yeah. And these are just two sides of liberalism. And yeah. Marxism is not liberalism, right? Yeah. Marxism is a collectivist ideology that says the human race, we can come together, we can solve our problems. And the first step is getting rid of a system where profits and greed are the driving force behind production. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, yeah, we've had... Um... We've had a few guests on recently. One specifically is very anti-degrowth. He's one of the few kind of academic leftist socialist academics who is anti-degrowth. And it seems like the, the DSA and the Jacobin crowd has really picked up this degrowth um, attitude. Uh, they say, you know, they kind of like allow some of the dissident people in to sort of trying to make it seem like, oh, they're being fair and it's still up for debate. But really like the, um, the flack that we've gotten from DSA folks about degrowth, they're, they're sold on this idea. They're like in the bag for degrowth at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the interesting thing is that it's, uh, it, it reminds me so much of the parallel between how the left and I'll say DSA, but you know, the left in general got, got sheep dogged into the idea of Biden because they were like, well, I don't, you know, I'm a socialist and I want all these other things, but the most important thing is uh, defeating the fascists. So we need to vote for Biden. So they voted for Biden. They're not getting any of the stuff that they wanted, but they voted for Biden and to, to defeat the fascists. And I feel like that's the same thing that's happening with the left and degrowth is that, uh, you know, leftist socialist people that advocate for degrowth, they'll insist, they'll insist that, uh, it's not Malthusian that they they think they abhor and disavow Malthusianism. Uh, they want redistribution with degrowth. Uh, you know they 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 don't think that uh, the working class should have to deal with less. It's only about you know degrowing the the billionaires basically, and they'll insist that. But really, like that's that's not that's the degrowth in their head. But the degrowth that the elites are going to impose on us is not going to be like that. But these these leftists, they're going to sheepdog everyone into saying like, OK, well, you know, we have to save the planet. So I guess we got <laughs> we got to well, go along with this. And, you know, what they're going to disarm the resistance to this. You know stuff. what it's rooted in is this idea of consumerism. Now, I don't know, Caleb, you probably know all the history about consumerism. That's a really interesting term that I've come across because it was originated basically by, well, from what I've read, um, by uh, an employee of uh Henry Ford's, um, you know, Ford company. <laughs> yeah. And, and he said that the term should be used to, to take the pressure off of capitalists and put it on the consumers, which I think is sort of this underlying ide ideology with like, you know, the, the degrowth and the, this new left movement is that everything happens from a consumer perspective. The individual. That, 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 an individual perspective that that it it doesn't matter how everything gets made and the production side of things that part is all said and done we can't make any changes to that where the activism comes in is how you behave as a consumer and that you need to consume less and you need and that's where the the fetishizing like poverty comes in and it's all rooted in this idea of consumerism i don't do you have thoughts on that 
Well, what's interesting is, um, you know, in, in the Muslim world, uh, the, the main purveyor of that kind of viewpoint would be the Muslim Brotherhood, right? That was the Muslim Brotherhood's critique of Ba'athist Arab socialism, of the Iranian revolution. They say, oh, no, we don't, we don't need to get rid of capitalism. We don't need to get rid of, uh, you know, foreign domination. We just need everyone to act in a moral way. If everyone just mm. converts to Islam and becomes a good Muslim, everything's fine. Um, and you get that from evangelicals sometimes. Yeah. In faith. They say, oh, well, the problem isn't capitalism and all that. If everyone would just study the Bible and be a good Christian. Then everything crony capitalism. Yeah, yeah. and now <laughs> we get that, you know, the left, it's this critique of consumerism. If everyone just made responsible choices with their money, there would be no problem. Well, yeah. you know, we, we know that, that societies have systems and so systems tend to reward certain behaviors and not reward others. And, and this, is, this is a way to kind of avoid it and to redirect the conversation to just, oh, human beings are flawed. Human nature is bad. Humans are greedy. There's nothing we can do. This is this is the same old kind of circular logic that leads us back to square one, and it leads to ultimately doing nothing. Um, you know, I jokingly say I, I remember this that many times. You know, on the left, people would be boycotting everything. Yeah. You know, and I realized at one point, I said ninety percent of boycotts, or maybe ninety-five percent, do nothing other than making the people boycotting feel good about themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, it, you know, you want to have a real boycott. The Montgomery bus boycott was a real boycott. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, back in the day when there would be like union boycotts and there was a picket line out in front of every, st I mean, that was a real boycott. I don't think that's illegal now under the Taft-Hartley law. Hmm. That was a real boycott. But, uh, but you know, this, oh, I don't drink this because it's irresponsible. I buy the organic product that costs $3 more because I'm good. Unlike you, inferior, yeah, yeah, you know, person. I mean, that that's kind of, that's kind of the prevailing attitude. Um, you can also yeah. talk about the, the Carter administration, because I feel like that was a turning point. You know, Lyndon Johnson, I mean, you know, had, had a, was a Democrat, a history as, as a Democrat, but he still, you know, he had some of that Roosevelt, you know, mindset, you know, some of the New Deal mindset. Kennedy, you know, was all about growth and, you know, Kennedy very much, he called, you know, right before he was killed, he called for the, the space program between the USA and the Soviet Union to combine, to have a joint moon mission. Hmm. Imagine how much history would have changed. Yeah. You know, but, uh, but Jimmy Carter, you know, that was really the first Democratic president we had who was from this like new left degrowth, you know, mentality. Hmm. And it was kind of a turning point. And, um, you know, Jimmy Carter, he published, you know, documents from the White House that, that pushed the idea that there is, you know, you know, growth is bad. You know, we're, you know, we're, we're you know, can't have growth because it's bad for Mother Nature. It's going to destroy the environment. Uh, he pushed identity politics. He, he sponsored the, an international women's, you know, or a national women's convention, right, in Texas, where, you know, women's groups wrote the women's agenda. Um, you know, he was the first president to meet with LGBT rights groups, even though he said he was personally opposed to, to gay marriage and, and homosexuality. Um, but what's interesting is he also launched a purge of his own party with the FBI. He launched a program called ABScam. Uh, which stood for Arab scam. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie American Hustle, but it's a fictionalized account of this, hmm. where the FBI had a guy dress up like he was a Middle Eastern sheik uh, and go around to different members of Congress and try to bribe them. Um, but the members <laughs> of Congress who were targeted were a layer that they called the labor Democrats. And they were guys that were tied to the Teamsters Union and tied to the, the labor unions, the maritime unions and stuff. And they were guys that tended to be not from his degrowth school. They tended to be pro-nuclear power, generally. Uh, they tended to be tied to organized labor. Uh, they tended to be really into you know, government spending on infrastructure. And you know, the FBI had this guy dress up like an Arab and try to give them money. And in some cases, uh, the, the members of Congress, the senators and others who were being framed would push the, the suitcase away and say, I don't want to take your bribe. And it didn't matter. They would be convicted. And it was just a mm. purge. 
hmm. uh, that was carried out, um, you know, and it was a way to purge the Democratic Party of these, you know, you used to have in urban areas generally, you had entrenched, you know, members of Congress who often were very corrupt and maybe tied in with the mafia or something, but also were very, very into handing out the goods. You know what I'm saying? Patronage, yeah. baby. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's what had to be gotten rid of. Um, and yes. so as the the more Rockefeller, Malthusian, you know, degrowth, synthetic left element came in, you had to push back the power of organized labor. You had to get rid of the influence of the Teamsters and people like that. Yeah. You know, it's funny, too, because Carter, uh, I, you know, you say Carter, I think of, oh, that's the Habitat for Humanity guy. And it just makes me think that he also represents kind of this foreclosing on the idea that we could have big, like public housing projects, you know, big, big approaches to big problems uh, and Habitat for Humanity. I just picture, oh, we're just going to like smatter like a few houses here, a few yeah. houses there. We can only build them as fast as we get volunteers. And it's giving up on the idea that we can use politics, we can use collective forces to come up with big solutions. Yeah, but it's great for problems. PR. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, Carter called himself a student of Zbigniew Brzezinski. And almost everyone in his administration came out of something called the Trilateral Commission, which was set up by David Rockefeller. It was a think tank where Henry Kissinger uh, and Zbigniew Brzezinski got together all these academics and came up with a plan. Basically, you know, the USA had lost the Vietnam War, had been humiliated, and they came up with a plan to reassert U.S. power and defeat communism at the Trilateral Commission. Um, and, you know, I mean, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who comes out of the, the Columbia University School of Communist Studies and was actually a bit of a mentor to Barack Obama as well, they came up with this strategy where, you know, they would kind of do differently than what the military industrial complex had done, right? You know, they, instead of bombing Vietnam and having big wars with lots of soldiers, what they would do is they would have the United States look almost like it was retreating internationally while escalating, giving arms and weapons to various proxy groups um, and inciting various anti-imperialist forces around the world against each other. The most blatant example uh, was, you know, how they, you know, found Osama bin Laden, the mm. wealthy young Saudi, um, and had him, you know, build an army of Islamic fanatics to go to Afghanistan to fight the People's Democratic Party, and eventually the Soviet Union sent their troops in to fight, and, you know, you had the Afghan war, um, you know, and that's where a lot of Al-Qaeda and all that is rooted in, in that, you know, that whole situation where the United States was covertly backing Islamic extremists to fight against communism. Um, but also you had, uh, you know, the Kampuchea War, 1978, where, you know, Pol Pot, leader of Cambodia, attacked Vietnam. And so Vietnam, a communist country, and Cambodia, a nominally communist country, were fighting each other. We now know the whole time the CIA was giving guns to Pol Pot and, and arming Pol Pot against Vietnam. And then eventually China invaded Vietnam and to protect Cambodia. And it was, it was a big mess of communists killing other communists. Um, you had, you know, the very beginnings of the Iraq-Iran war where, you know, I mean, you had, uh, you know, Iran has the Islamic revolution, uh, you know, Iraq is, you know, secular Ba'athist Arab socialist, Iran is led to believe by somebody that, uh, that Iran is trying to foment an Islamic revolution inside Iraq, so Iraq preemptively invades Iran and you have a bloodbath where, you know, a million people from the Islamic revolutionary anti-imperialist current and the Ba'ath socialist anti-imperialist current are killing each other. In 1978 in Europe, you also have, you know, the influence of all this money that's being funneled to academics. You know, a lot of these academics in France and Spain and countries like that are members of the communist parties. Um, you know, and they're getting grant money and being encouraged to, you know, push more of a, a critical theory approach. And then finally, in 1978, you have the Spanish Communist Party, the French Communist Party, and the Italian Communist Party come together and denounce the Soviet Union. 
and become what they call Euro communists, right? Um, and this is all, this was the strategy, the new strategy was, you know, we can't, you know, the idea was if we just have a big war like we did in Vietnam or Korea, people aren't gonna like the United States. But if we pretend to be retreating, right? Yeah. Carter's peace president, right? He's, he's withdrawing. Uh, then we can escalate our forces around the world. And the Contra war in Nicaragua, where the USA was arming the Contras, the drug dealing terrorists to fight, that started with Jimmy Carter. Afghanistan started with Jimmy Carter. You know, he had the, you know, incites the war in Southeast Asia, you know, between Cambodia and, and Vietnam. He incites the war between Iraq and Iran. This was all, this is a big new Brzezinski strategy of how to defeat the communists and how to defeat the anti-imperialists, which he blatantly spelled out later. In the 1990s, Brzezinski wrote a book called The Grand Chessboard, where he said the strategy is to, quote, keep the barbarians killing each other. Hmm. That's the strategy, hmm. right? Um, and, and that is, you know, a lot of people look at the Obama administration and say, it wasn't the lesser of two evils, it was the more effective evil. Yeah. Right? This is that strategy, right? The military industrial complex doesn't like this stuff. They want to make lots of money selling weapons. But, you know, this is this is the more effective way to maintain the dominance of Western corporations. It's well, and I, I think you could see that you could see that mirrored in the, the people of the United States, keep them warring with each other, destabilize, you know, the people so that they don't focus on the fact that we're actually controlling them and and extracting all, you know, all the, the good shit from them. ID poll is one of the greatest tragedies I've yeah. seen because I'll tell you long before Black Lives Matter had ever been tweeted out, I was in Cleveland, I was a young communist activist and I went to court with victims of police brutality in the mm -hmm. black community. There was a group called Black on Black Crime Incorporated led by Art McCoy. And I mean, these folks, they had a meeting every Wednesday night and you know there was police brutality happening all the time on the east side of Cleveland. And I was going to court with family members and I saw how vicious that police brutality was. And I would tell people about what was going on and they would say, that can't be true. That's just, you know, people just refused to believe it. But now, you know, because Barack Obama was elected president and he didn't resolve it, things got worse. You know, you had the Ferguson and then Baltimore and you had this explosion of, of awareness around about, around police brutality and the reality. Yeah. And finally, we're having a conversation about it. But the conversation doesn't turn into our rights are being taken away. Right. Law enforcement is out of control. The conversation generally turns into it's worse for my group. No, it's yeah. not. And, and you, you, you know, low income white people are starting to feel the, the you know, the, the brunt of this as well. Right. There right. is, you know, the no knock raids and all of this. It's certainly far worse for the black community. No question about it. But low income white people are feeling it. But when they feel it. On Twitter, uh, it tends to be, oh yeah, it's far worse for black people. Right. And black people feel it among the low-income white workers who are getting mad at the government. It's not, oh look, we have a common destiny. It's like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's become a conversation where no, it's worse for you. No, it's worse for you. And it becomes this oppression Olympics that we're playing. And, and it's about, you know, you're not suffering, I'm suffering. No, you're not suffering, I'm suffering. It doesn't become a conversation about how all working people are facing the brunt of an emerging police state. Right. The United States is locking down into kind of a, a high tech dark ages of low wages, right? right? And this is the opportunity for solidarity. For the first time, you know, there could be, you know, black and white uniting against the police state. And instead yeah. we're having a conversation about who's the most oppressed. Exactly. Well, but that's because that's the mode that we're in. And that's how people see the best way to secure their their interests, their resources, is by fighting, you know, all the other people who you know, now there's now there's a system in place where it's like, oh, if you can claim that you're the most marginalized group, you can get the goods. You know, this is just another means to gain, you know, whatever resources, whether it's like attention yep. or fame or whatever. Um, 
in the system that we're in. So that's, that's why that behavior is, is like totally incentivized and it's, it sucks. It's like distorted the, any kind of like solidarity that we could yeah. be building. You say the pie is only this big. Yeah. Right. And the pie can only be this big. The only way your slice can get bigger is by cutting into somebody else's because mm. the pie is only this big. It's limited. Right. Mm. And no one ever thinks their slice of the pie is big enough. Right. Yeah. So that's that's what you have here. But if we can get back to the mindset, the pie is unlimited. It's a scarcity. Right? It's a scarcity yeah. mindset. It is right. And and naturally, people want more than what they already have. That's the nature of humanity. That's how we got from, you know, hunter gatherers in the woods to iPhones and space travel. Like we want more. Right. Which so, is why we shouldn't be doing degrowth. We should want abundance. I, mean, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're you're far, far more well read on this stuff than I am. But uh, what, what do you see like in the history of Marx um, with his his kind of debates and conversations with Malthus um, back in the 1800s, like were, were any, do you see any parallels from that debate that they had back then and now? Well, I mean, I don't know if Marx ever personally interacted with him, but he did write the book theories of surplus value, which was Marx critique of various economists who had come before him, including Adam Smith, including, you know, other folks. And he specifically has a section in that book about Malthus. Um, and he basically argues that Malthusian economics uh, is, is basically it's a shill, that the guy was paid by various people to write economic arguments to justify what they were doing. He wrote a book basically justifying predatory landlords who, who were charging people rent that they couldn't afford. And he wrote a book arguing that that was somehow justified. And his, his book where he coins the term overpopulation, right, the essay on the principle of population, um, that that was largely what that was about was it was an attack on the French Revolution. Right, that across the channel, you know, the British were looking at the French Revolution and saying, oh my goodness, what's going on there? Why did this happen? Well, Marx understood that this was feudalism in France was no longer sustainable. It was, you know, a new social order coming into being. Um, but of course, the British Empire didn't see it that way. And so they argued, oh, these French people were just breeding too much and the, uh, the food supply didn't catch up with the birth rate. So therefore, you know, therefore, uh, you know, we, we just, you know, we, when the poor people have too many children, every so often you have a big explosion of violence and that's, that's all you can do about it, right? Um, but there's, there's some other parallels because, you know, neo-Malthusianism, it's about a hundred years later, uh, you get the rise, you know, the Rockefeller family, right? That's the, you know, you know John D. Rockefeller, the founder of, founder of Standard Oil is like the richest American who's ever lived. He's richer than most billionaires are in our time if you add, you know, relative wealth. I mean, he mm. was the richest mm. American in history. Um, you know, and he started a similar idea because there's strikes and labor unions and all these things. What can it be? What well, can't be that our system's bad? What well, must be that the poor people just breed too much? He starts the Neo-Malthusian Society uh, <laughs> and, and he gets a lot of British intellectuals on board with him. And eventually they find an, an, a woman by the name of Margaret Sanger. Um, and Margaret Sanger was a communist in New York City, but she was one of these cosmopolitan intellectuals who wasn't into communism so much for the workers' rights as she was into it because communism meant free love. She was all about free love and sex and, you know, and all that. She heroically went to jail for birth control many times. She didn't like John D. Rockefeller because he was a big capitalist and she was a communist. So she actually took out an ad in one of her newspapers calling for his assassination and then hmm. fled the country. Uh, but when she was in exile, she went to the Soviet Union. And she got to the Soviet Union and she didn't like it because the Soviet Union wasn't the free love, free sex paradise she was hoping for. And, you know, in the Soviet Union, it was under attack and invaded and it became a rather rigid, militarized place where they weren't, you know, having big wild sex parties all the time. 
So she didn't like the Soviet Union. She went back to Britain and she actually made up with John D. Rockefeller, abandoned communism, moved back to the United States and became a leader of the Malthusian Society of the United States and founded Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's disturbing is, um, you know, she wrote a book called The Cruelty of Charity and it was written during the Great Depression. And on the cover, it has like a girl like holding a bowl, like begging, right? Now you look at that, any rational person sees that girl begging and they say, give her some food, right? But a certain mindset says, oh, that girl should never have been created. And this is Mm -hmm. what happens when the poor people breathe. And she goes around speaking to Ku Klux Klan rallies and you know, saying that you know, if we legalize birth control and abortion, we can breed out the black race. And she's oh, making, wow. yeah, she's making, she's gone she's from crazy. communism to Malthusianism in a very dramatic way. And of course, Hillary Clinton eulogizes her and loves her, right? And that that, but what's more important, I mean, it's it's that you know, Malthusianism is totally contrary to the Marxist vision of class solidarity. And of course, she's preaching racism and she's blaming the Great Depression on people breeding too much and so. But the more important thing there is that at the end of the day, you know, she traded socialism for sex, right? You know, I'm all for you know, personal freedom, no one, you know, people should be allowed to have whatever, you know, live their life the way they want. I'm not for restrictions on people's personal behavior. Mm. Uh, But at the same time, you know, this is an economic philosophy. It's about the working class fighting for their rights. It's not about just lifting, you know, the restraints on personal impulses and allowing everyone to just, you know, you know, pursue pleasure uh, as much as they want. And that there is, you know, I mean, I've noticed that, like, you know, there is a, a crowd of people on the internet that, It seems like they're really interested in the trans issue. They're really interested in sex worker stuff and they're not interested in economics, right? And and if you start talking about economics, you're a class reductionist, (laughs) right? You know, we're instead, we're waging this cultural war against conservatives, right? People that are conservative and maybe aren't pro-trans or aren't, you know, aren't in favor of legalizing prostitution. That's who we're fighting against. We're not fighting against the capitalist bosses. And, you know, you know, maybe we want to start a worker cooperative because that's more fair or something. We're not really fighting a class struggle. We're fighting a culture war against middle America. Mm. Part of that, though, gets to dealers. Part of that. Yeah. Gets to the point that um, that, you know, I think that, you know, look, U.S. society is not what you see on TV. Let's be real. I'm from a small town in Ohio. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I know a lot of people that are from, you know, Texas and Idaho and places like that. And when you turn on American television, which is seen all over the world, not just here in the United States, uh, you know, you're only seeing 90% of the time, you're only seeing New York City or Southern California. But the United States is a much less woke place than that, right? Mm -hmm. We're a country of settlers and gun owners. There's a lot of racism in America. There's a lot of social conservatism in America. Look, I remember I got paddled in school. We had corporal punishment, you know, in public Mm -hmm. school, you know, and in 19 U.S. states, you know, we're the only country in the world that still maintains corporal punishment in, in public schools, you know, and we are a deeply conservative country. But that doesn't sell so much around the world. People yeah. around the world look at that racist settler, gun-toting America of Bible conservatives and think, yeah, we don't really like that. Yeah. So it appears to me that, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates would like to give America a woke makeover, you know, <laughs> and say, oh, what the Soviets were saying about us being a racist country that hung black men from trees and all that's, that's the past. We're Black Lives Matter America. We're, a, you know, pro-trans America. We're this woke, enlightened, you know, country. Um, and we're so much more woke than Russia and China. So you should really do business with us because we're woke and exciting and modern. And <laughs> Russia and China are stodgy old authoritarian right. conservatives. It's a marketing gimmick, right? Yeah. It's about, about selling U.S. culture. Yeah. Um, 
However, there's just a lot of people in middle America who don't want to go along with this. They are conservative. They are right wing. And so the left, our job is to shame them and pressure them and push them. To, uh, you, know, you, know, that's, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's, right. that's our job. Well, that's, that, I mean, I'm sorry. That's, even, you know, yeah. Even yeah. wokeness is like, it feels like fake racism or fake bigotry to me. It's, it's just, it's bigotry, but with like a friendlier veneer. It's not even like sincere, you know, like. I think there's a lot of people in middle America who are more conservative socially, but if you met them, like if they met a trans person or if they, they, or a gay person or black, like they don't care. They're not like, they don't have hatred towards groups of people. I think these people have like all that, all that stuff stems from economic insecurity. So that's, that's the way we're going to have like a society where people aren't angry at different groups of people is when they're, you know, have, they don't need a scapegoat for that. Right. So like, you know, if you, if you want uh, to have a more woke, a truly woke society, that's inclusive of all kinds of people, you want to make sure everyone's economic situation is taken care of. They have no reason to hate on other people for how they live their life. Right. (laughs) And that economic security enables people to be more free. You know, the stere- yeah. you know, for years, unfortunately, the communist movement did have this anti-LGBT bent to it. If you went to the Soviet Union, you went to Cuba, they'd say, oh, we don't have homosexuals here. Homosexuality is bourgeois decadence. Well, that's mm. not true, right? That there are homosexuals of many right. different classes and income levels. Right. But why did they think that? Well, it used to be that only the only people who could really, you know, be safe enough to be openly gay were rich people. Yeah. Right, and then yeah. there was a widespread belief. Oh, you know, only yeah. gay people are rich because a working class person, you know, had a partner and was openly talking about being gay. They lost their job. They lost, you know. Well, and that's how it is for trans people now. That is exactly how it is for trans people, and that's why, you know, when these these rich celebrity trans people come out and everyone's like, "Yes, good job," and it's like this isn't representative of the population, where it still is very hard for trans people to come out. So, mm-hmm. like. It, it, it frustrates me when you see the left cheerleading, you know, they're, they're, they're cheerleading that idea that trans people is a bourgeois decadence. <laughs> like I stop doing that. You're actually hurting trans people by doing that. There's a lot of working class people that, you know, that out of, you know, they just don't have the freedom to, to be who they are because of the economic component to it. Yeah. And that, that, that side of the conversation is largely missing. Yeah. Um, in, in our time. And I, I think that that is, that is deeply, deeply tragic. And that, you know, that freedom in any society is based on a level of abundance. Look, the reason that, that people in the socialist countries of the world, it's not these, these countries that, oh, they just hate freedom so much. It's that they're under attack. They're facing sanctions. They're bombarded. And that when a country is under attack, it tends to develop a more authoritarian model to pull itself together. And that yeah. it's you yeah. know, peace, prosperity, abundance, these things lead to more freedom. Yeah. That's the reality. Yeah. You know, one contradiction, though, that I think of when, you know, we talk about decadence or not decadence, but abundance, rather. Hmm. Um, and thinking about how the the whole Earth Day thing got started. And, um, you know, from what I've read, it's it kind of started from sit-ins uh, on college campuses. And it, it came out of, like, basically not to be crude about it, but like bored housewives who were kind of like, didn't know what to do (laughs) with their day. And so like the kind of politics, this like sort of bourgeois leftism today is like, you could almost say it's, it's the result of 
abundance for a very specific class. And then they had, they had the opportunity to just kind of sit there. And I would say they just sit there and machinate on, on the problems of the world. So how do we break through where it's like, you know, abundance does help lift societies up, but we also don't want to, you know, have that abundance create a bourgeois class, you know, how do you do both at the same time? Right. Well, what I think is also interesting about, about Earth Day, and, and you know, you can even see this with, with May Day, May 1st, the international communist holiday, is that, you know, Marx, you know, he wasn't part of the French Revolution, but he was part of the 1848 German Revolution, which was very much seen as a continuation of the French Revolution. And Marxism emerged in the aftermath of the capitalist revolutions throughout Europe. And it was people saying, look, we still have a very unequal society. We haven't created a society of liberty, egalite, fraternity. So Marxism was saying, what's wrong with this new system and how can we actually get you know, the, the promises, the hopes that, that came out of the, Ameri uh, the capitalist revolutions of the world, whether it was in the United States or, or Britain or, or where else. And that, uh, that because of that, Marxism is very much stamped by, by the bourgeois revolutions that happened. And, you know, the bourgeois revolutions that happened, you know, a lot of that was, you know, you had, you know, during feudalism, capitalists couldn't openly organize and say, you know, we want to bring down feudalism and they'd get their heads cut off. So mm. they formed secret societies, right? And that's, you know, Freemasonry, you know, the so-called Bavarian Illuminati that was discovered and, you know, don't, no longer exists, but is the center of every conspiracy theory you ever heard. <laughs> that was the capitalists getting together and fighting against the Catholic church and the feudal order in secret and conspiring. And a lot of what, what those capitalists did was that kind of in secret, they were, you know, they were rejecting the Catholic church and the feudal order that existed at the time. But in a lot of cases, they were kind of looking backward. You know, they were looking toward pre-Christian teachings in Europe, right? There was a lot of, you know, you know belief in paganism, uh, pantheism. These kind of beliefs were very, very big in, you know, I mean, you know, and, and, and Freemasonry, a lot of the rituals are influenced by it. And, and the, the, a lot of like the ultra rich, you know, they don't feel a need to become, you know, Bible thumping conservatives, but they do hold on to some of the new age spirituality, a lot of which is very backward looking. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, the spiritual advisor to Al Gore is a woman by the name, I mean, she's, I think she's no longer living, but she was the spiritual advisor to Al Gore. Her name was Marilyn Ferguson. Um, and Marilyn Ferguson wrote this book called The Aquarian Conspiracy uh, in 1980. Um, and the book was all about how there's going to be this great uprising that takes place across the world. It's neither pro-communist or anti-communist, but it's going to be this great moment of human awakening, this explosion of, of people. And towards the end of the book, she lists like every CIA think tank in Southern California area as, as being part of this great conspiracy uh, you know, that's, that's awakening and this awakening of human consciousness that's going to shake the world and shake the planet. And you know, I mean, she's talking all about it. Uh, we now know that uh, that she was she was she was at the Stanford Research Institute in Southern California, um, and that Marilyn Ferguson was working with a group of people who were getting paid by the CIA to do uh, you know to do like um, uh, experiments into like what do they call it ESP and like telekinesis and all kinds mm. all kinds of taxpayer money was funneled to people like Marilyn Ferguson to do weird research into weird new age stuff, and uh, you know. Mm. Among the ruling class, there is a weird, you know, I, you know, and that's where some of the QAnon delusions come from, right? When, you know, when there's this feeling that, oh, the ruling class, well, they're not really Christians, they're actually satanic pedophiles. Well, they're not satanic pedophiles, but there is, <laughs> among the ruling class, there is kind of, a, you know, this new age stuff, you yeah. know, it exists and it comes out of, it, you can trace it back to the times when feudalism was being overthrown. I mean, May 1st, right. 
you know, is a pagan holiday, right? And the communists adopted it as their holiday, right? And that was because of that, because, you know, this, this kind of weird neo-paganism has kind of come, you know, has been part of what it meant to be a leftist since the French Revolution. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, these are all different influences. But I would argue that what gives socialism and communism its strength is the feeling of oneness, the feeling of community, the feeling of brotherhood and sisterhood and working together. Um, and that, you know, that drive toward solidarity, and we're all in this together, and we can get to something bigger and working together to accomplish a goal and to fight for a common aim that that almost you maybe you call it a spiritual drive. That's what has really given socialist and communist and working class movements their strength. It hasn't been giving people permission to release their impulses, giving people permission to, you know, deconstruct social systems that, you know, we really need to get rid of Sigmund Freud. I think Sigmund Freud is not a good influence on revolutionary politics. And we need to get to the economics of what Karl Marx said and focus on mm. that. Yeah, no, it's like a very navel gazy, that Freudian kind of yep. like inward looking. And uh, yeah, it's funny that you bring up consciousness and because our resident billi billionaire son, actually, Peter Buffett, who lives in our town and is creating a little uh, experiment here yeah. of his own. He is totally into that. He has apocalyptic ideation. Yeah. So everything he does, you know, the, the massive imbalance of power, it's all justified because he believes in an indigenous prophecy that there's going to be a, a seventh fire that uh, wipes out like civilization as we know it. And we're all going to ascend to a higher level of consciousness. So consciousness, every, you know, yeah. so there's no point in, you know, there's no point in the citizens, like being part of distributing these resources. It's all like, it's all in his head. So well, but, I don't think that the world is going to end. I think capitalism is going to end. Yeah. And it makes sense that they have such a fatalist outlook because their system is ultimately doomed. Um, but at the end of the day, I think humans will continue to grow and expand without the greed of billionaires and bankers. We'll what's just, a, I mean, what's, what's it going to come to, you know, because I feel like capitalism is kind of running its course at this point and we are at this shifting point and it, I mean, I, I fear that we're shifting towards like this sort of neo-feudalist era where right. it's, it's almost like capitalism gave people a little bit more freedom, but now we're slipping back into this very managed you know, era yeah. of human history. And I'll say really quick, I, I saw another interview on RT today with another RT, another RT person. I won't say who it was, but uh, they had on someone who's from like kind of a co-op movement in California. And they were talking about this, this new thing, which is very popular kind of in the billionaire philanthropy world, regenerative economics, a post-capitalist economics where it's not socialism. Not, there's not redistribution happening, but it's about people you know on the bottom uh amongst ourselves like creating these little cooperative networks and redistributing like one dollar seven times in the same little community and that seems like it, they're like preparing us for like some kind of you know new austerity where there's not redistribution there's not growth but we're just like circulating the same dollar around yes and to tie it into one more thing that you were saying before caleb is that that feeling that like kind of natural high of brotherhood and like you know feeling like you know one you know collective that really great feeling i feel like that energy is kind of getting zapped into this idea of mutual aid this very anarchist libertarian voluntarism mutual aid where people experience that little bit they get that high from that kind of same thing you were describing. And then, it, so then they become like addicted to this idea of like mutual aid and, you know, which is basically just charity. 
And so that's how, that, that's how things, that's how people are getting recruited now away from their socialistic tendencies, because I, I believe that human beings do have that inherent drive towards socialism, towards like wanting to be, be one community. Um, but it's getting sort of exploited in that form in, into like mutual aid anarchism and, and things like that. Right. Um, look, I mean, I think that, you know, mutual aid is a very good thing. And when people are struggling, they need to care for each other, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I mean, the point is to rise and struggle. The point is to seize control of yeah. the means of production, right? And it, right. That, that is not enough. And that, you know, I've often made the parallel between, you know, the evolution of Christianity within the Roman Empire uh, and the way Marxism and social democracy developed in Europe. Because, you know, when Christianity originated, it was a movement of Roman proletarians, people that were neither slaves nor property owners, right, who sold their labor power. And a lot of them were Jews from Palestine, there were some Greeks and others, and they were worshiping this carpenter from, from, uh, from Palestine. Uh, they were worshiping him, and it was kind of this religious movement of proletarians who were organizing unions and going on strike and all of that. But they also, you know, were building orphanages. Rome was the first society to have homelessness. You had thousands of homeless children in Rome, right? With, with, you know, slaves are never homeless, right? And landowners are never homeless. But with proletarians, you suddenly had thousands of homeless children in Rome. So the, the Christians were building, you know, orphanages to take care of the homeless children and all of that. And there was a section of the Roman elite that said, okay, all right, well, we don't like, you know, the Christians wanting to overthrow our empire and the last shall be first. We don't like that. But, you know, our society is much more stable when we, you know, we do have some orphanages here. And, uh, you know, our society is much more stable when we have some charity for the, the hungry, you know, people and such. And that, you know, if we can take the Christianity and kind of water it down and make it into something that actually makes our empire more stable rather than something that's trying to overthrow it, um, you know, that, that hmm. might be something that works out. And that was, you know, and largely as Rome, you know, around the time Rome was starting to fall, you had, you know, the conversion of Constantine, the emperor of Rome converts to Christianity and announces that Christianity is his religion. Um, and as Rome was, you know, kind of crumbling and falling apart, it was, you know, kind of turning to ideas that had previously suppressed, not because it was, you know, reforming, but because it was trying to stabilize its empire, right? And social democracy, and, you know, Marxism is a movement that seeks to overthrow capitalism and imperialism. But, you know, but, you know, there are, you know, watering downs of it that are something that the capitalists and imperialists will use to stabilize their empire. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that's, you know, a similar process that's taking place in our time. I would argue, I've made that parallel. Karl Kautsky makes that parallel in his very important mm. book, The Foundations of Christianity. He talks about the proletarian origins of Christianity within the Roman Empire, et cetera, and, and how this, this division emerged in the early Christian church. Are we a revolutionary movement or are we just a movement that makes the Roman empire better? Hmm. Interesting. Man, it is, it is so cool to talk to you, Caleb, because your, your understanding of history, and it's amazing because you start to see the patterns over and over and over again. It's like history really does repeat itself and it's the same struggle over and over again. And if yeah. we could just like get it right this time, you know? And let me add this, you know, uh, it's very easy to say that the Roman Empire was awful, which it was, but the fall of the Roman Empire, not so good. You know, the human life expectancy drastically decreased. The average height of a human went down significantly, calorie intake. The fall of the Roman Empire, it took Europe 1,100 years to get to the population level that it had at the height of the Roman Empire. It took them 1,100 years to get back to that level. So, you know, I think that it's very possible. You talked about we could be getting ready for some kind of big collapse. 
I think it's very possible that, you know, that, yeah, I mean, U.S. society could ultimately collapse and, and could just deteriorate into something even more chaotic and less stable and impoverished. That wouldn't be good. You know, no. as much as I'm opposed to American imperialism and empire, I don't think that just having society just crumble is, is a good right. thing. I'd right. like to advance towards socialism, right. and structure our relationship with the world, have a planned economy, have friendship with Russia and China and the people around the world, you know, not have a, a predatory capitalist imperialist system, but rather have a more productive, more stable world based on humanity, brotherhood and kindness. Yeah. And that's what's missing. I think a lot of these people, you know, I constantly get thrown at me. What's your position on decolonization? Well, you know, if, if, if you know, the indigenous people wanted to have their own independent territory, I wouldn't be opposed to that. You know, if they chose it, I wouldn't force it on them. The same right. for the Chicano people and such. But at the end of the day, I'm not just in this to cathartically, you know, yay, and watch America <laughs> go up in flames. I tell yeah. people, I'm not a socialist because I want to destroy America. Right. I'm a socialist because I want to save America. Yeah. Save mm. America from the horrors of capitalism. Totally. Uh, that means being refounded and getting rid of all this settler colonialism and racism and all that. But yeah, it means getting to a better country and a better society, not right. just completely celebrating the downfall of something you deem oppressive. Right. 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 And who do you think, yeah, who do you think is going to uh, take control when everything, you know, the shit hits the fan? You think it's going to be the 90,000 people on the DSA email list? Do you think they're going to take control? <laughs> Or do you think it's going to be like Jeff Bezos, you know, private military companies, like they're, they're the ones that are positioned to take control, not, you know, not our like very, very loosely organized and unprincipled uh, left that we have. Yeah. You've been listening to the Space Commune podcast. I'm Fox. I'm Alex. And today we've been, been talking to Caleb Maupin. Uh, Caleb, tell us, what, what do you want to plug? What, what should our listeners, um, where can they find your work? Sure. I'm a journalist and political analyst. My website is calebmaupin.com, C-A-L-E-B-M-A-U-P-I-N, at caleb.com, uh, calebmaupin.com. I've got books widely available, books like Getting Rich Without Capitalism, Kamala Harris and the Future of America. Uh, city builders and vandals in our age, all putting out a socialist, anti-imperialist, constructive philosophy. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Caleb. This was really great. We'll be uh, all celebrating Earth Day together, I guess. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Ira Einhorn. <laughs> <laughs>